Welcome. This is Karen Modokaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. Today, I'm really excited for you all. I have a guest interview. Dr. Kristen Neff is coming back to the show. She's been a guest before, taught me so much about self-compassion. And for those of you who don't know who Dr. Kristen Neff is, she's an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. And the woman is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research. And she's been doing this for over 25 years. She has a brand new book coming out that builds upon her other research that we've talked about. And this book is called Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. I am so excited for you to hear about this additional information for you so that you can lead your life authentically and align with your truths and what you need. So I will circle back with you after my conversation with her. Kristen, I'm thrilled to have you back and to be able to talk about compassion and to be talking with you again. And the timing is so perfect, especially as we're, I don't know if we're coming out of COVID. I don't really know how to label where we are in this time frame, but your work is so needed. It's been monumental in my life. It's been life-changing. So that I want to thank you because I was always the just work harder, be tougher on myself. I didn't understand when people would say I was too hard on myself and learning how to be compassionate and have self-compassion has been life-changing. So I thank you. And I'm excited to help share your new work with the world. So. Oh, thank you, Corn. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> yes. Yes. So tell me about how this work is different than your previous work that you've had on self-compassion. Right. So it's really building on it. So self-compassion in its simplest form is concerned with the alleviation of suffering. Well, compassion in general, and then self-compassion means you turn that concern inward. So being supportive, kind. But over the years, I started realizing that people only saw one side of self-compassion. They thought about its kind of tender, gentle, nurturing side, the side of self-compassion that's about self-acceptance. And that side is definitely there. It's very, really important to self-compassion. And I call that tender self-compassion. But there's also a, a, what I like to call a fierce side of self-compassion. This is the action-oriented side. In other words, to alleviate our suffering, sometimes that means self-acceptance. But sometimes that means we need to make changes, right? Either changing our behavior or changing our situation. Sometimes we need to stand up for ourselves, draw boundaries, Sometimes we need, need to say no to others and yes to ourselves. Uh, and absolutely motivating change is a really important part of caring for ourselves. And I realized that people weren't as aware of that side of self-compassion. So that's why this book is called Fierce Self-Compassion. And in particular, it's written for women because it talks a lot about gender role socialization. Because men are socialized to be fierce, but not tender. And women are socialized to be tender, but not fierce. And that really harms everyone because 
people need both. Why we need both sides of compassion to be well and to be whole. So the book is really written particularly for women to help them develop, kind of claim and honor the fear side of their nature. So one of the things that I learned from your work previously is compassion has boundaries. Because I think so often we mistake of, I used to think of, if I'm nice, then people can walk all over me. And what I've learned because of you, thank you, is that compassion has boundaries. And so that was really great. Last summer, I was in a really difficult negotiations because I run a swim team and I was speaking truth to power and I could be considered as a female confrontational, right? Because I was advocating for a few hundred children and, you know, going to the city management. And I decided that being confrontational was a way to make me small. And I looked at them and I said, I am fierce. I'm advocating for the benefits of others. This is really, really important. So I'm going to be direct. You may not appreciate this, but it's really, really important. And I now have a fierce baseball hat that I wear a lot. (laughs) It's helped me. And so of course, when your book came, I was like, this is perfect. Like this is the direction I've been heading in instead of thinking, oh, I'm confrontational. It's really about being fierce, but being compassionate. And as you said, women haven't been allowed that space in the past. Right. Yeah. And pretty much the only place where we're allowed to be fierce is when protecting our children, you know, mama bear. And so I I talk about, well, there's mother and there's mama bear, right? So mother is kind of tender and accepting and mama bear is like, she'll rip your head off if you threaten her cubs, you know? And the idea is that we need to be able to turn that energy inward as well as outward. You know, and it's not just you, Corn. One of the reasons I wrote this book is because, you know, I open the book with there's something in the air. Every woman I talk to can feel it. And it's so true. Something is shifting at the transpersonal level societally where women are finally saying, okay, we aren't just going to be nice and subservient anymore. We're going to demand our rights. We're going to, we're going to speak up for what we know to be right. You know, you can't sexually harass us and abuse us. You can't pay us less. All these things that have really disempowered us for so many years, it really all stems from, you know, it's kind of a feminist book because you really understand what's happening. You have to understand why is it that women are socialized to be nice and to be accommodating? Why, why is it that our value is predicated on us saying yes? Well, it has to be said it's because it serves those in power. Right. If you want to keep a system where women are disempowered, what you do is you tell women, oh, your value only comes from how nice you are, how agreeable you are, how much you help other people, how self-sacrificing you are. And we've had enough of it, you know, and it's also look at the world around us. This idea that, you know, men are fierce without being tender. Well, how well does that serve the world if you look at all the problems in the world? And so there's really time for a shift, I really believe. And I think every person, regardless of gender identity, needs to care, care about themselves, care about others, and have access to all forms of care, whether that's tender, soft, gentle, nurturing, or whether it's fierce, you know, I'm going to stand up to injustice. For instance, the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movements, I clearly see as self-compassion movements, fierce self-compassion movements. It's all about protection from harm. We can't be afraid to go there as women. And you know what? People may like us a little bit less, and that's okay. That's the thing about self-compassion. 
is we aren't so dependent on other people liking and approving of us. You know, we start to get our worth intrinsically from our own care and concern. And we have to be willing to shake up the system a little bit because, you know, has the system really been working for us? It hasn't been. And I think as enough people come on board, we'll start to really start honoring this fierce energy that women have. Mama bear, force of nature, we should honor it, pray to it, <laughs> you know, as opposed to shaming it or, or hiding it. Well, isn't it hard though? Because like when you talk about people liking us less, like we as women have been culturally programmed, or even let's just say it, we've been groomed that your worth is dependent on how popular you are, or do people like you? Yeah, or how attractive are you, right? Mm-hmm. Or really importantly, do you have a relationship? Right. So women who, you know, historically who weren't in a relationship, they were spinsters, they were worthless. And even now, you know, I'm single now. A lot of very high powered, successful women I know are single. And there's still something we have to fight against is this subtle feeling in the back of our mind that, well, if I don't have a man, if we're heterosexual, if I don't have a man or at least someone to tell me I'm, I'm worthy, I'm special, I'm beautiful, I don't count. And we really have to intentionally stand up to those messages because they have been used to disempower us. You know, and I suppose in many ways, my book's a call to action, because if you look at the world around us and global warming and health inequality, wealth inequality, you know, all the problems in the world, systemic racism, sexism, especially in third world countries, we don't have a lot of time left. You know, we we have to do something differently. And I personally feel part of what's going to change is when we start lifting these gender role restrictions that keep the whole old way in place. And we start saying everyone should be allowed to be their full authentic self, whatever it looks like. But certainly they should be able to access both their fierce and their tender side. That goes for men, too. Men are just as harmed. Well, they're just as harmed, although they are empowered by the power structure. So it's a little different. But, you know, they are harmed by the old ways of doing things. I'm curious, like when you say they're harmed, in what ways do you see them being harmed? Because I I know what ways I'm thinking. Toxic masculinity, which is really defined as you might say, too much fierceness with no tenderness. It's all about being aggressive and macho and all this. It decreases men's emotional intelligence. So for instance, we know from the research that self-compassion is one of the most powerful sources of coping, resilience, mental health that we have available to us. And yet only about 10 to 15% of any audience I speak to is full of men because men, they don't feel, you know, compassion. Isn't that a female thing? You know, so emotional intelligence, it really, it really robs them of the ability to work productively with their difficult emotions because it's like they can't allow themselves to be vulnerable or to be tender. I mean, Brene Brown talks brilliantly about the power of vulnerability. Well, if you aren't allowed to be vulnerable, you aren't, you aren't able to deal with your difficult emotions and that harms you, right? And so, yes, you may have power and you may have status and, you know, all that. There's some advantages to that without doubt. But if you aren't happy or you're stressed, or you're dying of heart attacks and you're, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, is that really the most healthy thing? And so, so I think I, things need to change. I totally agree with you. Things need to change. I work, do work some work with the Air Force. They say, ma'am the air force is soft enough. And now you're going to give us these soft skills. (laughs) And one of the things that I talk about is sustainability, like how being able to sustain your career in the air force. And if you don't have that emotional system working, 
you can't sustain. And that's where the drinking, right? The, the domestic problems, all of, so when I think of harm of the toxic masculinity, that not having the emotional system, that having that fierceness without the tenderness, they have a system that's not operating. And so the only way, Kristen, that I can get them to buy in, I go, you all, it's like you're playing the wheels aren't coming out of the plane and you're going to crash land. Like we need all the systems to work. And they kind of look at me like, okay, but we're not quite sure about this, but that's the way I look at the harm that they're going through. Yeah. So the, the UT Austin men's basketball team asked me to give the, the players a little workshop in self-compassion. I didn't even use the word because I knew it would turn them off. I just called it inner strength training. And that's really what it is. But remembering that, again, it's not just gentle self-acceptance. That's part of it, you know, accepting that we fail. For basketball players, for instance, you fail constantly. You miss you miss baskets. If you freeze up after failure or you shame yourself, you're going to blow the game for your, you know, for the team. So you need to deal productively with failure. How do you do that? Well, one is by accepting, okay, everyone fails. It's part of the game. It's part of sports. But the fear side says, but I want you to do well. I want you to achieve, not because you're unacceptable as you are, because I care and I want you to you know, do your best. And so it's that fierce and tenderness intermix that actually enhances both. So is that the new part of your research, this fierce part of the self-compassion? Yeah. So in my research, I don't like empirically distinguish between the two types because in many ways they're combined and integrated. But what the research shows is there's actually a meta-analysis that just came out that shows self-compassion leads to both emotion-focused coping and problem-focused coping. So what that means is, you know, more the tender side is we deal with our emotions, we accept them, we nurture ourselves, we heal ourselves, but also we do stuff about problems. It's not like we're just complacent. And I think people get confused about this. And we need both to be healthy and well. And, so, and also my research shows, ironically, even though compassion is part of the female gender role, women have less self-compassion than men do because they don't feel entitled to meet their own needs. Again, we're so socialized to be self-sacrificing that, you know, we, we feel it's selfish to meet our own needs, even though the research also clearly shows that the more self-compassion you have, the more able to, you're able to sustain giving to others without burning out and you have better, more healthier relationships. So the good news for women is women are more open to the idea of self-compassion as a resource. So once they get over the, you know, I'm supposed to give it outward and not inward, once they give themselves permission to turn this skill inward, they already, they already know how to do it. Their skills of self-compassion are very well developed. It's really just about permission to do that U-turn and treat yourself the way you treat others. Not feeling entitled to meet our needs, right? Yeah. That's part of the systems of what we've been told as women, right? Of you need to sacrifice yourself for other people. Yes. How do we get around that? Well, you, you know, first of all, you have to question it, right? I mean, that's so my, my book is, it has like, history, kind of the, the position of women, gender roles, stereotypes, kind of history. And then really importantly, it has practices because you can try it out and see what happens, right? Again, you know, you, you just have to ask yourself, how is this system working? You know, where men have basically the power, the entitlement, women are basically, you know, and it, it's changing a lot. Of course, it's changed a lot. Women are, you know, much more represented in, in school, graduate school management positions. 
But the system is still there in the pandemic, for instance. It was mainly the women who stayed at home to take care of the kids while the kids were on Zoom at school. And so women got a huge setback in terms of the gains they had made because that system of, you know, women are the ones who sacrifice and not the men is still in place. So again, really questioning, how is this working for me? (laughs) Is it working for me? You know, what would it look like? And maybe people can try it out if I were to claim my fierce as well as tender side. And again, people think it means it's going to harm their relationships. It actually doesn't. What the research shows is people are more able to balance their needs with those of others. It's not like if you have fear of self-compassion, you become like self-absorbed or you prioritize your own needs. You just stop subordinating them. You're, you're more able to say, okay, my needs count. My children's needs count. My spouse's needs count. And, you know, everyone's needs count. How do I come with, to a compromise solution that counts everyone's uh, value. But if we devalue ourselves, then not only does it harm ourselves, it actually really does harm our ability to be good relationship partners as well. So it's win-win if we start balancing our fierce and and tender self-compassion. Doesn't it take a lot of courage though? It does take some courage, but luckily that's what, that's what mama bear gives us, right? When we (laughs) claim our fear side. So, so I talk about tender self-compassion, so there's three components of self-compassion. There's there's kindness. There's the sense of common humanity. That's why it's compassion, suffer with. It's a sense of connectedness. And also mindfulness, kind of awareness of the fact that things are difficult. So a tender self-compassion, that feels like loving, connected presence, kind of gives you the sense of what it feels like. We hold our pain in loving, connected presence. It allows us to heal. But when aimed at protecting ourselves or speaking up or, you know, drawing our boundaries, it feels like brave, empowered clarity, right? Kindness, just like that energy. When when we protect our kids out of love, it's like fears. Our our fear response goes down. We may get angry. You know, we, we may have that fierce energy, but the anger is aimed at helping as opposed to harming, right? It's aimed at protecting. And so when our anger or our fierceness is aimed at protecting us, that helps us be brave. It actually reduces the fear response. And here's the thing with self-compassion. You know, the bottom line is that we have research to show this. Our sense of self-worth is less dependent on the approval of others with self-compassion. We did actually one study with, with women with negative body image. We just had them listen to the self-compassion meditations on my website for three weeks. And at the end of three weeks, their sense of self-worth was less dependent on perceived attractiveness to other people, right? So our sense of worth becomes more unconditional, and that's where freedom is. You know, when our sense of worth isn't dependent on looking a certain way or people liking us or success, you know, it's okay. if we, Obviously, we want to succeed, but our worth isn't dependent on it. That is real freedom. And that gives us a lot more options in terms of the choices we make in our life. It also allows us to be more authentic. That's another thing the research shows. We can be our true selves when we really care about ourselves, you know, as opposed to just like putting on a mask to please other people. What kind of life is that? So how about in the workplace, right? Because the systems are really ingrained and people are afraid of losing their jobs, right? So I have watched women keep other women small because the way that the hierarchy works is a man in charge and they need to keep him happy. So they will do that. I mean, I was just in a situation recently where I watched this whole thing down and women were getting disempowered. 
Yeah. Well, and that's why I think women, we need a collective awakening. That's also kind of what my, my book is about in the sense that, you know, if we're working within the patriarchal system, we're basically helping to support it. So for instance, one of the things the research shows about women at work is, and by the way, this isn't conscious, but subconsciously, we believe that men are more competent than women. Consciously, we don't say that. If you were to ask, who's more competent, men or women? A lot of people might even say women. <laughs> but if you look at the resume of two identical resumes, and one's named Steve and one's named you know, Susan, you're going to judge Steve to be more competent. There's this bias. And the really scary thing is, is if you say, oh, yeah, Susan and Steve just underwent a work performance evaluation. They are both got super high ratings. Okay, so Susan is competent. How much do you like Susan and Steve? People like Steve, but they don't like Susan. And women are especially prone to say, I don't like Susan. Women are especially likely to dislike competent women. Why is that? There's two reasons. One is it may be a little threatening. You know, again, this is all unconscious, but it's kind of threatening. And the other is we like nurturing women. And so we think if you're competent, you can't be nurturing. It's almost like we think that you can't be both, even though that's not true. So this is the system we work in and women do help perpetuate the problem. And so I think part of it is up to women just to be aware of these biases, to ask themselves, actually, would I have this reaction to this woman if it were a man? Usually the answer is no. And unfortunately, you know, the system, we, we can't like just pretend the system isn't there. It is there. But what the research also shows, this is the good news is that if women consciously display both fierce and tender qualities, for instance, so she's very competent and powerful, but she also makes an special effort to externally say, how are your kids? How are you doing? In other words, display that more warm, communal nurturing side, then she doesn't have the negative effects of being fierce and competent. So yeah, it kind of sucks that men don't have to do that, but you know, whatever, it's a system we're in. Hopefully it will change eventually. You know, but there, so this is why the balance and integration is key. It tends to reduce these negative stereotypes without just feeding into them. Yeah, I was, you were reading my brain because I'm like, that's not fair. Women have to think about being kind. It's not fair, but we have to start, we also don't want to lose our jobs, right? So that is one way that the research shows that women can not have the, the backlash from being so competent is that they intentionally display. Like, I think sometimes women think they, they shouldn't be nurturing at work because it's like a man's world is, you know, so, so I call it also yin and yang is a nice metaphor because it's not so tied to gender. You know, yang is more forceful, agentic, and yin is more soft and nurturing. I think a lot of women really, you know, they call on all their young qualities because women have, I think, just as many as men. I mean, it's, it's just socialization that inhibits or explain it. But really what the research shows is, is if you just exhibit both, especially both simultaneously, then that's the best way to reduce the backlash without remaining disempowered. The other point, though, it goes back to what you were saying earlier about men and toxic masculinity is by them just being fierce, there's a cost to them. So really there's a cost to us to just be fierce. That, that's right. That's right. We don't want to just be like men or, you know, and again, male, we're talking about gender roles. I think in terms of, is there a real, I don't even know biologically, there's probably some difference, but it's probably very slight, but certainly we don't want to act like men have been socialized to act because that's harmed men. And it's also, again, I think if you look at the world today, a lot of the problems are caused by this fierceness without tenderness, like unbridled capitalism. 
you know, the fact that we don't have health care, the fact that we don't have universal daycare, a lot of these things are caused by the fact that men have been in power and they haven't really given a lot of due consideration to these other issues. And that's part of the reason we're in the mess we're in, you know, so we don't want to just replicate that. I find with that they haven't had to have the the need for perspective beyond their scope, right? So the universal child care, they had somebody taking care of that. So exactly. they didn't have to worry about that. That's right. right? Yeah. Where we as women, we were taking care of so many different things. And so our perspective is broadened. That's right. Yeah. And so again, my, my hope, I mean, we'll, we'll, I have no power over this, but my hope for this book maybe can play a small role and it's happening anyway, is that everyone is freer to access both their fierce and tender side and to be their authentic selves. And I think it would help men and women and people who are, you know, people who are transgender, for instance, they're, they're like doubly screwed over because, you know, like they're, they're socialized in a way opposite of how they feel and that there's no place for them. Wouldn't it be amazing if everyone was encouraged to have their own unique expression of their fierceness and tenderness? And you probably will look different based on biological sex, but maybe not in the way we expect it to, you know, I don't know. I think it would really help everyone because these, these are things that, that help everyone, the fierceness and the tenderness. We have, we need the emotional healing. We also need the action and, you know, doing things to achieve. We need both. I, I totally agree with you. And I see people so afraid of loss or of change or people being different, right? Because what people want in universities, in athletics, they want conformity. Do you, are, do you look like me? Are you like me? Yeah. Because this is safe versus to have all these variables, people start to, I see them start to shut down. Yeah. Well, you know, stereotypes are comforting, right? We just, we, you know, we, we think we, it helps us feel like we understand the world, but they're also very harmful. And again, you know, race and gender, they're also totally intertwined. Oppression is oppression. And so I think the same principles that lead to, you know, systemic racism, for instance, also are the same principles that lead to sexism. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, and that's another reason why we need fierce self-compassion, that that ferocity, because sometimes, you know, the self-help world, which I I think self-compassion is part of, I think it's more than that, but it's part of that. It's not enough just to be well and, you know, sit on your cushion, your meditation cushion, or to be healthy and peaceful. Again, if the world around you is going to hell in a handbasket, or people are being, you know, oppressed, or there's a lot of pain in the world, because that also affects us, even just from a selfish point of view. If the world isn't peaceful and functioning well, that also affects us. And so we need to be able to take action not only with our own lives, but also in the world at large. And my gut tells me it's really time for women to step up to the plate. Um, Because again, how well have things been working? And I think women are going to have to play a key role in making the changes that are are going to allow our world to be sustainable. You know, it'd be nice if men just totally agreed and like started loving fierce women and, oh, great, an angry woman, love that power. But the truth is they may not. And to say, you know, this is actually who I am and it's a beautiful thing and it's a, it's a powerful thing. This is what it's allowed me to, you know, do a lot of the things I've done, like raise an autistic son and, you know, create a new field of study and all of this. I'm not going to wait around for men to come around. Again, hopefully a lot will and we'll have allies and all that. But in many ways, this, this is partly why I wrote the book for women as well, because it's like, you know, 
we need, <laughs> we need to wake up and we need to do something different. And not everyone will, but hopefully a lot will. And it's, the thing is, it's already happening. I'm not, I'm not like, this isn't a new message. I'm just repackaging it a little bit differently. But look at the Women's March, the biggest march in U.S. history. It's already happening around the world. Something is in the air. We aren't going back to the days when it's okay if a man sexually harasses a woman. And hopefully no longer we aren't just going to say, oh, that's just the way men are. I'm not going to speak up and rock the boat. Forget it. It's too late for that. We aren't going backward. And I have a whole chapter in the book on sexual harassment and abuse and how we really need this fierce self-compassion to stand up to it. You know, the, the world is changing. It's changing fast. And so, again, my, my hope is that I'm giving can give some concrete tools and practices it's really, it's not even about saying we need to do something different. It's like helping women to deal with the changes that are already happening. It's already happening now, which is exciting. It's also hopeful. Well, and I appreciate because when I talk with like my clients about being compassionate, they're like, that's just being passive or that's yes. just being, you know, and I'm like, compassion is not sitting down and eating a bunch of bonbons and having a Netflix binge. That is not compassion. No, it's not. It's not healthy. Mama Bear's compassion. Me too. Black Lives Matter movement. That, those are compassion. The Women's March. That was the self-compassion march, right? Sometimes it really means speaking up, saying no, drawing boundaries, saying we have to do things differently because I need to protect myself. And of course, the self and self-compassion isn't just our own personal self. It's like the big self, society, humanity, the planet Earth. You know, that's all part of the big self that we also need to care about and protect. Something I learned in the last probably week, Kristen, is because that meeting, I was so exhausted last summer, you know, COVID, fighting difficult battles, that kind of thing. And I was so exhausted, not taking care of myself, not sleeping. And I think I cried in the meeting because I was just so frustrated. And then I apologized because I don't like to cry. I'm a strong woman. And and then I apologized for crying. And I was in a meeting recently and a a young woman was crying and apologizing. And I was like, never again, if I cry in a meeting, I will never apologize for crying. There's nothing wrong. It's not about being weak because I cry. Yeah. Well, also, so that's one side. So we apologize for crying, but also remember the presidential candidate debate where Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren, really strong, fierce woman, and the moderator asked them, you know, is there anything you would like to apologize for to your candidates or offer them a gift? Yeah, I think she asked them, would you like to apologize for something or offer a gift? All the men said, I want to give a gift. You know, here's my policy proposal. Here's my book. And Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar both apologized for basically being fierce. You know, I, I'm sorry. I get, I get you know, really passionate about things. Um, please forgive me. I don't mean to be so brass. You know, don't basically don't hate me because I'm so fierce. Men don't have to apologize for being fierce. They, people love them for it. They actually like it when men get angry. They believe, oh, he's passionate. He's powerful. You know, I, I believe him more if he's angry. With women, it's like, oh, she's crazy. Mm-hmm. We have to change that. And women are going to have to start it because it'll probably take a while for men to catch up. <laughs> so has, is, this is something we can do ourselves. When we see a, an angry woman... We can say, I'm not going to buy into that socialization that says women shouldn't be angry, that women are supposed to be nice and sweet. Actually, good honor for getting angry. You know, go girl. That's what we need. We need to really start questioning these stereotypes and be at the forefront of changing them. 
because we also raise our, you know, primarily raise the kids. We're the ones who raise our sons and daughters. We have some power in terms of the messages we give them. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something I have a friend who has three young boys and she's like, I have white men that I'm raising and she's a strong, ferocious woman. And, you know, she feels a huge responsibility to raise these men so that they don't have white male privilege, right? So that well, when they can acknowledge it, but also understand to be able to have space for strong women, right? That is like one of her big goals as a mom. So I think for women who are listening to our conversation and they may feel powerless of what can I do? I need my job. I can't speak truth to power. What can we do in our homes? I mean, that's the first step of what we can do. Right. Yeah. You can do it in your homes. And also, you know, can you not speak truth to power? Well, again, so the research does suggest that when you integrate the yin and yang, when you integrate the fierceness and tenderness, it goes over much better. Again, too bad that we have to do that. And men don't, but that's just the way it is. But it's not like we have no, we have no options, right? So we can, we can bring in that fierceness as long as we remember to balance it with the tenderness, with the kind of more nurturing communal stuff, it sets people's guard down. So it makes it more palatable when we show our fear side. And that's the place to start anyway. So my previous career, I was a community college faculty member, and I was also a coach. So I'm in athletics and in academia. And I was young. And so back then, you know, being in athletics and a male dominated industry, I was like, well, I'm not going to be emotional, plus being a former athlete. So I was like, I can be nice and be walked over and have to bring cupcakes for birthdays, or I can be a bitch. I'm like, I choose bitch because I'm not going to have anyone walk over me. But it's that fierceness. And so what I've learned though, in large part from your work, is in that space in between is compassion, right? Where I can be fierce and I can be direct. And I can be kind and caring, you know, and learning how to do that. And that's actually made me a better leader. Yeah. And so and a lot of the almost every practice I have in my book, and I have a lot of them, has some sort of integration of the two energies of the yin and yang of the fierceness and tenderness. And I'm not going to say it's totally easy. It it takes work and it's it's a challenge. You got to do it intentionally. But it does it does make a difference. So we, we do have options. It's not just one or the other. We can balance and integrate these two energies in an effective way. And the other thing, Kristen, I'm thinking of is that we have been, again, culturally programmed, or I just want to go to groomed. We want, we have been groomed as women that what other people think really matters. Yeah. Right. And what you're talking about is a sense of agency, like, okay, what's inside of me? What's my own self-awareness? What do I believe Yeah. before... What do all these other people believe? Yeah. And then also really your value comes not from other people, but just comes from your unconditional love, worth, and support for yourself. And actually, you know, the research shows pretty clearly that the more self-compassionate you are, the happier you are, the more satisfied you are with your life, the more authentic, the more you're able to draw boundaries, you know, create compromise, have better relationships you know, less depressed, less anxious. The research is pretty overwhelming in terms of the benefits of self-compassion. And so you just need to ask yourself, well, how, how well is the old system working for you? You know, and if it's not, this is something else you can try. Well, when I think about the system and this pressure that women have been put upon to be perfect, look perfect, act perfect, you know, be perfect. We're so busy trying to be perfect, which is not possible. Yeah. Right. And it's exhausting. And really, we need to go and be self-compassionate and check in with like the question I always ask myself is, 
Corinne, what race are you in? Do you really want, is this the race that you want to be a part of? Like whenever I, you know, cause if I get into compare and despair, it's like, is this a race that I want to be a part of? Is this something that I use to measure myself? Right. Right. And, yeah. and that has been helping me of like, oh, well, that's not a race I want to be a part of. Like, why would I do that? Yeah. And I, yeah. I kind of calm back down again. So that's been helpful for me. Yeah. I, I, my, in my book, the last chapter is um, all about the compassionate mess. <laughs> That's kind of a metaphor I use that the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. You know, our goal is not to be perfect, but simply to open our hearts. Right. And again, the compassionate mess doesn't mean passive. It doesn't mean complacent. It also means, you know, we're, we're fierce, we, we're authentic, we, we're strong, but that really our focus is on the warmth, the help, the kindness, the support, you know, alleviating suffering as opposed to getting it right or being perfect because that's not possible as a human being. Mm -hmm. So do you have days where you struggle to be self-compassionate? So, you know, I certainly have days where I might, shame might come up, you know, so I I just thought last week I did a, a conference and I at a certain amount of time and I got the time wrong and I went 15 minutes over and like people were like pulling their hair out, but I couldn't tell because I was on zoom. And then, so when I realized it's like, you know, it's like, so stuff comes up and I, and shame comes up, it still comes up. I think shame is just kind of a natural biological reaction. Then I knew immediately what I had to do. I put my hand on my heart, you know, and I said, you know, I, I feel really badly. I feel badly that I stress these people and they were paying me a lot of money for it. It's like doubly, you know, shameful. And and so I just kind of held it and I supported myself. I also, you know, did my apologies and I offered something to make amends for it. You know what I mean? So it's not like you don't take responsibility when you make mistakes. So shame comes up, but I didn't call myself names. I didn't fall into the illusion. I almost never fall into the illusion that beating myself up is going to make it less likely to happen again. I know from like 25 years of experience that, yeah, the way when it comes up and it does come up, that there's only one way through. And that is through kindness, support, understanding, again, doing what you can to say sorry, to make amends, you know, how to help the situation. And so yeah, I, I must admit, usually I almost never really like harshly judge myself or call myself names or any of that. That's pre- that habit's pretty gone. But the shame still arises. It's still mm-hmm. something you have to work with. I, again, compassionate mess. I was really messy when I did that, but I was compassionately messy. And, and that's why I'm over it now. And, you know, it's okay. It didn't derail me. Well, and I think that's really important because I think people, you know, and you refer to the self-help, right? I think people think, oh, once I master this, I'm going to be great. And it goes back to that perfection stuff yeah. again. Yeah. I mean, you would think after 25 years of this, I would be like this really together woman, you know, <laughs> like I, I say, just because I write about fierce compassion, this isn't someone who's like figured out anger management. I get it wrong all the time. You know, I, I get it wrong all the time. And I, sometimes I joke, thank God I'm a self-compassion teacher, not a mindfulness teacher, because the expectations are lower. You know, I am self-compassionate, but I, I make mistakes constantly. I'm a little better. There has been some movement, but really where most of the movement is, is I have really gotten a lot better at holding the mess with compassion. And that makes all the difference. Because again, it means you aren't so derailed. You don't fall into depression or anxiety. You know, you fall down, you get back up again. You fall down, you keep get back up again. It's a process. It's not a destination. It's a way of being in the world. And that way of being is really helpful. Again, going back to the system, I think we've been lied to of, 
oh, if you're really good, you'll never fall down. If you just had it all together, you'll never fall down, which is a lie. Like we do fall down. Yeah. Well, and also, isn't the truth that failure is our best learning experience? You know, we know that and yet we don't want to believe it. (laughs) And when we fail, we think, oh, no, this is horrible. This shouldn't have happened. Well, how are you going to learn if it doesn't happen? You know, Mm -hmm. but we don't like it because it's emotionally uncomfortable. But one of the great benefits of self-compassion is less fear of failure and more ability to learn from failure, which is a very good thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I am more comfortable with like the feelings of shame. Like I can, it doesn't feel good, but now that I know what it is and I can identify it, like, oh, this is shame. And then I'm like, okay, now this is time that I really need to dial up self-compassion. This is really important. Dial this up. And you said something that's really important that I want to make sure we address is Self-compassion doesn't mean you just push something off or blow it off. It, there's that accountability part, right? Like, which you talked about in with giving that talk, there is that, oh, I recognize I did this. I made this mistake. Yeah. There's that and, ownership. And, and actually, and the research shows very clearly that self-compassion, like if you have people think about a mistake and you have them give themselves compassion about it, they're more likely to apologize or want to make amends. See, what happens is we feel a lot of shame about something. We'd really rather not think about it or maybe blame someone else or just not even go there because it's so uncomfortable. The ability to go there, which is what self-compassion gives you, and to hold your shame and to say, wow, I really blew it. I'm so sorry. It also gives you the emotional resources needed to say, what can I do to try to make this right? It increases personal responsibility and the desire to make amends. Okay, Kristen. So now my brain's thinking, Is compassion what we need to bring in to do negotiations? Oh, you mean like conflict negotiations? Conflict negotiation, workplace negotiations, you know, any sort of negotiation. Yeah. You know, I'm a big fan of nonviolent communication. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And that's really compassion, both self and other compassion system. So I think negotiation or conflict resolution without compassion is going to be flawed. So, you know, in terms of communication style, compassionate communication is necessary. Um, You know, if you look at the great social justice movements of like, you know, Gandhi or Martin Luther King or a lot of the the really successful social justice movements, they did have compassion at their core, right? It's like fierce compassion. It's not okay. We're going to draw a line in the sand. We're not going to hate anyone. And those are the movements that tended to be most successful. So I think absolutely. Like I think about the male places, right? The male systems of it's powering over, right? And it's this, I win, you lose versus how much more powerful are we when we we actually. And if it's win-win, if we all win, isn't that so much better? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because if it's power over, then you're constantly having to watch your back. You can't relax. You don't feel safe. Cortisol levels are constantly activated. You're going to have a heart attack. You're not going to be very happy in your life. You know, so what use is power? You know, Martin Luther King said, I think that love with power is like the force driving the entire universe. And again, it's about the integration. We don't want to disempower ourselves. We don't want to just be nice and sweet and go along and be subordinate. That's not good for anyone. We don't want to have power over and not care about others' feelings and just take and abuse. That's not that's not going to make you happy or certainly the other people happy. The integration, balance and integration, this is where we need to always be heading toward. And sometimes that means going left, and sometimes that means going right. You're really the only person you can ask yourself, 
what is it that I need right now? And that's what self-compassion is, simply asking yourself this question. What do I need to alleviate my suffering? Right? Sometimes that means I need to just accept myself. I need to stop trying so hard. Sometimes that is the answer. I just need to, you know, just love myself unconditionally, flaws and all, and I'm good enough. Good enough. Sometimes that's actually not the right answer. Sometimes, yeah, I, I always love myself, but maybe I need to get off my butt and do something. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm harming myself by not trying, or maybe I do need to work harder, or maybe I need to draw boundaries, or maybe, you know, I mean, it's really, you're the only person who knows. No one else on the outside can tell you what you need. But if you aren't allowing yourself to even ask the question, you know, that's a problem. <laughs> And women have not been allowed to ask themselves that question. It says, what do other people need? What do my children need? What does my spouse need? What do my friends need? What does my work need? And that's not healthy for women. And so women need, and again, there's that fear. Well, if I ask myself what I need, does that mean I'm not going to care about other people? It doesn't work that way. The more you meet your own needs, the more resources you have available to meet others' needs in a way that's sustainable and healthy. Absolutely. I know that for sure from raising my son, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and the research also really supports that. Well, and I think that's been so pivotal, right, for women to be able to understand that you can't give what you don't have. And so it's important to take care of yourself. It's not selfish. You take care of yourself. Now you actually have more to give other people. That's right. Yeah. And it's, and it's not just self-care. I mean, self-care is important in terms of self-care behaviors like rest, you know, spending time with friends and me time. That's important, but unfortunately, sometimes we don't have as much time as we want, or maybe we don't have the resources. So it's really important, emotional self-care. So there may be some times when you are just, you know, you don't have time for yourself and you are exhausted and you are burnt out. Well, at the very least, you can give yourself compassion for that pain. Instead of shoving it down and just stiff upper lipping it, you say, this is really hard. Just taking a pause and putting your hand on your heart and saying, I'm so sorry, sweetheart. I know it's so hard. I'm here for you. That alone can make a huge difference. Well, Kristen, it's been great having you back. I'm so loving this fierce and tender self-compassion and the integration. And again, I think it goes back to what we were talking about. It's so that we can sustain this life that we have. Yeah. And women need this now more than ever. So yeah. thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been a lot of fun. I love this new twist or this new addition to Kristen's work on self-compassion and the societal roles and the gender roles that we as women have faced. And my invitation for you is to really think about, you know, this fierceness that she talks about. And it's something that I've been talking about and, and living and doing. So the, her book coming out and her latest research is a joy for me, but it gives me this like internal validation. The other thing is, and I've said this here on the show many times before is, you know, years ago, I realized that if people like me or don't like me, it really has nothing to do with me because the people that may not like me is I don't fit in to their system. I don't fit into their structure and it can be really petrifying for them. And the people that do like me, it's a validation of what they believe. And so the most important thing for me in my own learning was, do I like me? Do I like me? And so there has to be that internal because when I was the approval whore trying to get everybody's opinion and everybody to align with me to, you know, give me 
the reassurance that I was good or a good person or doing a good job or whatever it was that I was seeking, get the approval. Oftentimes I didn't like me and I didn't know what I believed and I didn't know what my truth was. And so I love that Kristen sprinkled in a lot of questions that we can ask ourselves in this interview today. You know, one is the, what is it that I need right now? And for you to answer that, and the answers are inside of you, not from other people. We've been taught, we've been programmed to believe that other people have the answers. And my friend, my invitation for you is that the answers are inside of you. And it's so important for you to get clear on that information. And I love the other question that she talks about is, how is the system working for me? right? Maybe you're not in a position of power at work where you can speak truth to power and you can say, oh, Corinne, it's really easy for you because you work for yourself and there are parts of my life. That part is really easy for me. And there's parts of my life where I am in systems and I'm involved in power structures where I too can feel disempowered and helpless and frustrated. And I too I was telling somebody recently, I've said, I feel like that 12-year-old girl who didn't get invited to the sleepover, everybody knows the reason, but nobody is telling her why. And I feel bad. And that feeling is shame, right? And I was recognizing that and I could own that. And then I had to think about, so the people that are part of this so-called cool kids club that may not have chosen me, is that people that I want to be a part of. And there's always going to be costs and consequences. So I'm not saying it's like, oh, we're going to be unicorns and rainbows and you get to be your authentic self and there aren't any consequences because there can be. It's going to be really important to recognize the systems because then you can figure out how to move through them and allow yourself to be your authentic self. And and sometimes maybe It's about getting a new job and not working in such a toxic culture. Sometimes it's about realizing like, okay, how can I advocate in a way that my message can get heard? I love this idea, this concept when Kristen talked about, you know, nonviolent communication. If you don't know about that, that's a powerful tool and it's nonviolent. I used to think it was about powering over people. Let me get really angry and let me, you know, power over and I find it to be ineffective. And the more that I can drop into a compassionate space and that really can help in negotiations. So, you know, being able to use your voice from a place of, compassion, I have found it to be more effective. doesn't mean it's never, remember, I always say I'm not the fairy godmother. doesn't mean it's bippity-boppity-boo and, you know, everything and you get to live happily ever after because <laughs> that's not how it works, unfortunately. But what happens is that over time, and I find myself seeing this in my own life, over time, you look around and the people who are in your life are the right people. And maybe I didn't get invited into the cool kids club or the so-called cool kids club, but the people that I get to be with are real and authentic and genuine. And those are the people I want to be with. So really what I'm getting to is this work takes a lot of internal reflection. This work takes your ability to trust yourself, 
takes courage, takes a lot of courage because you're going against how we've been programmed to be, the messages of who we need to be to be accepted, to belong. And it can be really frightening. It's really, really scary. Even for me, even with all this work, I can still get scared and I've got an amazing support network. So my invitation for you is to play with this, to be fierce and to be tender. And you're going to screw it up. I screwed up all the time. And like I said, with the interview with Kristen today is I learned from a meeting recently to never apologize for crying. I will never knock on wood. I'm saying it here, but not going to. And I used to, I remember when I was so beaten down and I was at the college and I just couldn't help it. And I would cry. And then I had all this shame because I'm a woman and you know, they're going to say you're too emotional. But what I know now is because I cried doesn't mean I'm weak. I'm fiercely strong. And there are times that the damn wall gets broken and the tears come out and it does not, it's not a reflection of my weakness. It may make people feel uncomfortable, but it's not a reflection of my weakness. And I'm going to own it and I'm not going to apologize. And I'm not going to apologize for being fierce. So as I get stronger and have more compassion for myself and own all parts of it, that is how I'm going to move forward. So my invitation for you, as you think about fierce and tender self-compassion, what is the permission you need to give yourself? What is the permission? My permission is I don't need to apologize for tears or being fiercely compassionate. Now, the next thing is When we have privilege, I really believe this, and this is something that I think I've even learned at another degree when, as Kristen was talking about Black Lives Matter, is when we have privilege, I really believe it's important, like I have a responsibility to help those that do not. And so that's part of the reason I do this show. But when we have privilege, so we, you know, when you're in a room, when you, if you are in a hierarchy, if you're in a workplace and you have privilege, how are you using your privilege to help others rise up? And that's a question that I ask myself, not every day, but I ask myself and I think about that in my own leadership, in my leadership as a human, in my leadership as a woman, in my leadership with titles, in my leadership as a coach, you know, my leadership as a family. How do I help others who may not have the same access to privilege? So my invitation for you all is to be fiercely compassionate as well as tenderly compassionate. Compassion is not weakness. Kristen's work has changed my life from going from a person who was so hard on herself, beat herself up, be really mean to herself, to where I have been able to look at myself, own my story, own my strengths, and acknowledge my weaknesses, check in with what do I have the capacity to work on and improve? And where do I need to accept this is where I am right now? And that's okay. So my invitation for you is really lean into compassion. We need this and probably more so now than ever. I'm smiling big for you. Hey, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you'll love my weekly emails. I know you're thinking, Corinne, really? Do I want another email in my overflowing inbox? Yes, you do. Yippee, skippy, you do. These are short. They're sweet. On Fridays, I send out the Friday podcast. It's a great reminder that there's a new show 
and it comes straight into your inbox of the latest episode. Awesome. You click on it, you go straight because we all need reminders. We have busy full lives. And then on Sundays, I have my Sunday love column. And these are emails I write from the heart. They're filled with love. We need more love. We all do, myself included. These are short emails where you get a quick takeaway so you can incorporate this into your life because people often want to know what to do and how to do it. And maybe sometimes it's a story that you get, or there's like one time I wrote about the 10 ways to practice gratitude and that became such a great tool when one of the readers was struggling in the middle of the night because it can be a scary place in our brains in the middle of the night. And she remembered the email that I sent about 10 ways to practice gratitude. And she was able to practice gratitude and fall back asleep. And that was an awesome lesson for her to incorporate into her life. Go to the show notes and there's a link in the show notes where you can sign up and get these emails in your box. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so 